0: condemnation now I dread. In that last hymn. We said, bold I approach the eternal throne. These are not claims that, people, that the people of God even have always been able to, to make. As we study the Old Testament, we see the code of the law. We see all of the procedures in place. We see all the barriers between people and God as they approach the tabernacle to have this uh, surrounding of, of these massive... Curtains, this, this fencing around that, and to enter and to be confronted with uh, this huge bronze altar where blood had to be shed, and the bronze laver where even the priests who represented the people to God had to cleanse themselves, and, and then the steps that they had to go through bringing incense into the curtain and so on, and all of the regulations to do this, and the fact that they had to offer up sacrifices for themselves. They themselves had to be constantly purified. And the sacrifices had to be offered day in and day out. In fact, the smoke never stopped. Day and night, the smoke was rising of sacrifices to indicate the cost of sin and the importance of approaching a holy God on His terms. And the wages of sin is death. And so the constant reminders, the constant visual and and sensory, uh, the smell, all of these things, uh, the reminders of the cost of sin was before them all the time. And the priests themselves had such high requirements just to serve in that role as a mediator between the people and holy God, sinful people and holy God, and they themselves bore their own sin. And so the whole thing becomes this vivid picture of the need for a Savior, someone who can solve this problem of the rift between holy God and sinful people, someone who can bridge the gap once and for all, So we've seen the requirements throughout Leviticus as we've studied, uh, the the various ceremonies, the different types of offerings that were to be brought to the Lord that would address the various needs of the people, whether they had offended God through sin, uh, whether they were um, giving back to Him what is His due by tithes and offerings, whether they were seeking closer fellowship with Him, with the fellowship offering, and so on. And through all of that, uh, we have instructions for the people and instructions for the priests, and The people had to take responsibility for their part and bring the right sacrifices, and the priests had to be ready to receive them and had to evaluate these sacrifices and make sure that everything was done properly before God, that no unworthy sacrifice would be presented to Him or the whole thing would be unacceptable. And so when we come to Leviticus chapter 21, and it's actually chapter 21 and 22 we're looking at today. I know it's a big hunk of text We're not digging into the minutiae because so much of it does not apply to us directly today as far as procedures, but we're going to observe from this, once again, this important principle of God's requirements and how human beings suffer and struggle to reach those, those requirements. And then we see the solution in Christ, of course. So, Leviticus chapter 21, beginning verse 1, I'm going to just read, um, I think, the entire passage. So, uh, while you're still awake, let's just go ahead and get that done, and then we'll come back and just kind of make a few uh, summary observations about these two chapters, all right? So, back, buckle your seat belts. here we go. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests. So you see now we've come to one of those segments where he's given instructions to the people in the last couple of chapters, and now we're back to the specific instructions for the priests and how they fulfilled their duties. And we're going to see, watch for this as we go through, the first major point in the outline is God required purity, position, and perfection for Israel's mediation, You get all that? It should be up on the screen. There you go. God required purity, position, and perfection for Israel's mediation. In other words, those who were to come and stand between God and the people, there were high, high expectations and requirements for them. And and that's part of what we're going to see here in these two chapters. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. And I will maybe just pause along the way just to make sure things are are clear. But you can see that that instruction for the priests in general is that they are to not become unclean. This is ceremonial uncleanness. The challenge is that if they are on duty in the temple, they cannot do things that will make them ceremonially unclean so that they cannot approach God on behalf of the people. All right? So not everything that is listed here is something that is forbidden by God for all people, for all the people of Israel for all times. These are specifically for priests on duty. These are things they cannot do. All right? So they cannot attend funerals other than for those in their immediate family and the specificity about the, sister, the virgin sister. In other words, she's not under someone else's family authority. She's still under this priest's uh, umbrella, so to speak, and so he can care for her. But if she was married, then, that would, then she would not be someone whose funeral he could attend while on duty. Right? He shall not make himself, verse 4, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. Now, verse 4 is not a forbidding of of marriage, but saying that he needed to have an appropriate marriage. And there's more detail coming for that following. The reference to the baldness and the shaving, these were procedures that were common among the pagans, the pagan priests would shave their heads, and you've seen the images from Egypt especially. They're very familiar with this. They would shave their heads and everything completely. Others of the pagans in, in Canaan would do various you know, shaving and sculpting of their beards and their hairs and things like that. We see that stuff today, but it's not for religious purposes. But for them, there was significance to some of the things they were doing. And so because of that context, God forbade his priests from doing that. So they were not to have white walls or you know, all kinds of things like that, cut into their hair and their beards and things like that, right? Or cuts in their body, and we're familiar with that from the prophets of Baal, the procedure of of cutting, and sometimes there was um, ritualistic scarring, just as we have today with tattooing and cutting and scarring and that sort of a thing. These things were forbidden for the priests of God. They shall be holy to their God. In other words, set apart, special and not profane the name of their God. And profane, in this case, is not just profanity as in saying naughty words, but to bring disgrace, or, or it's a reference to sacrilege, something that is dishonorable or that drags down God's name or reputation. You'll see that word used several times. They should, middle of verse 6, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. And we talked about the sacrifices and, the, and that these things were given to God uh, by fire, and yet a portion of that was given for the priests for their support as well. But it's considered God's food, so to speak, His, this offering that belonged to Him, though He needs no food nor drink. Verse 7, they shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. So he's saying um, no prostitutes, or uh, even the word expands to just um, licentious, um, uh, just inappropriate sexual relationships. It doesn't necessarily have to be prostitution formally. So he's supposed to marry a pure woman, in other words is a priest, holy to his God. Verse 8, you shall sanctify him. In other words, set him apart, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Now, that sounds really extreme, but understand, God didn't, God didn't call for, we have no evidence anywhere in the text that he called for burning people alive. This is a reference to after the execution for the immorality, that the body would be burned as a symbol of the lengths to which God wanted the people to go to keep their society pure. And so it's showing the seriousness of this kind of behavior. Verse 10 The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, in other words, the chief priest for that year, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. So in other words, he cannot go into mourning. He cannot do the normal things that people would do in mourning if someone passes away. The high priest has an even higher standard because he's the one who would go through the veil into the most concentrated center of God's presence. And so he is forbidden even from mourning death. Verse 11, He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am Yahweh. And he shall make he shall take a wife in her, in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. Now understand, he is not putting all these women in the same category uh, as far as being uh, guilty or something like that. A widow is not held guilty, but he's just saying that for the high priest, this is someone who has to have the highest standard of clean record of right living, and so on and so forth. So he can only marry a woman in her virginity. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people. So there, she's also supposed to be of the Levite tribe. That he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Verse 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout your, their generations who has a blemish May approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat of the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am Yahweh, who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. That sounds like it's getting really harsh, isn't it? Anybody who has any defects whatsoever. And again, there's actually no moral judgment in this text about that. He's simply raising the bar for who can stand in that position of intimate mediation between perfect, holy God and sinful people and people who are affected by the curse of sin. God is holy, perfect, God of life, not of death. And so that person who would stand in that place inside the curtain had to be as perfect as a human can be in every way. And we come to chapter 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the Holy things of the people of Israel which they dedicate to me so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. In other words, don't take what's dedicated to God that is not legitimately offered for the priest's provision. Say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am Yahweh. Take this seriously, in other words. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen or whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body with water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am Yahweh. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear the sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. Once again, this is talking now about the provision of uh, what the priestly tribe was allowed to partake of. There was a portion of the sacrifices, as we saw earlier in the book, that was dedicated to the provision of the priests who offered up the sacrifices and so this is part of god's plan that from the people comes the provision for those who serve the people before god but that was considered holy because it was part of the sacrifice given to god and so it was only for the priests and his family or those under his care that could eat of that food and so this is a warning that people who are not qualified or who are ceremonially unclean may not partake of those particular things that were part of an offering sacrifice Now, verse 10 continues, a layperson, someone who's not of the priests, a layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired workers shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. Now, I know there's a word that triggers everybody, right? What? The priest had slaves? Well, very small sidebar, but let's address... Just a little bit, right? We have a tendency today to impose on this word our image of slavery in the modern era. Things that we, you know, know maybe of American history and other, in other parts of Europe and so on, of, you know, people living under the lash and being treated as subhuman and, and all of that sort of a thing. But in this historical context, while there were people treated that way sometimes... It was also very common, this this word slave is actually a very broad application, and it could even be a person who was in indentured service, as in they owed something to an individual that they could not pay, and so they would say in order to pay it off, I will be your servant, I will live in your house and work for you and do whatever you tell me to for the next two years to pay it off. And that person would be called a slave. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily abused. There were also, when one people group conquered another people, the people would come into servitude of the the people who conquered them. Most people, I think, generally preferred to become a servant in someone's house over being killed, and those were usually the options. So there were many reasons why there were people in servitude and under people's care, and you know, we can't take today's sensibilities and push it back on that and say, what, you know, treating people like property and so on. Oh, well, it was a different time and a different culture, and it's the way it was. But we can see here that God placed a personal value on each individual. He considers, and we see it as well in the New Testament, but before God, there's no such no difference between slave or free, right? Every individual in God's sight still had the same personal value as one of his creatures, as someone who bore his image. And so he's saying, that even the person who is in the status of slave in the priest's household, because they are under the priest's care, they get to eat of the holy things. They got to partake of this food that came as part of the sacrifice before God, which was considered sanctified and holy. Right? So you see that there is a value placed on this person equal to the others. All right? That's As far as I'll go with that, for now, I'm sure some people will have some comments, but that's the way it is. So he may eat of the food. If the priest's daughter, verse 12, uh, marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and is returned to her father's house, as in her youth, well, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of the uh, holy thing somehow unintentionally, he shall. This is great that God even makes a provision for a mistake, for a genuine mistake, right? He shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. So he pays back with interest, what was, which was accidentally taken inappropriately. And they shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am Yahweh who sanctifies them seventeen and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows of free will or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, it shall be accepted for you. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect, there shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. No castrated cows. And you shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in the same day. Or, and when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall not sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten, I'm sorry, uh, when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am Yahweh. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am Yahweh, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am I am, Yahweh. Well, are you thankful you don't live under this law code anymore? Well, we see that God required purity, position, and perfection for Israel's mediation. First, ceremonial purity and perfection for the priests who stood between God and the people. And that was that first section of verse 21, verses 1 through 24, we saw the restrictions against being involved in funerals and the way who they could marry and what, what they might do that might make them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean so they cannot approach the, the Holy of Holies or the holy place in that condition until they're cleansed and so on and so forth. Raising the bar for those who are closer to God. They had to be pure and perfect. No, Not even physical imperfections because God is the perfect God, and He's communicating through all of this His own purity and perfections and holiness. But remember, everything in its context. He's not saying that a person with a frailty is a less valuable person to Him, simply that they cannot fill this particular role. Secondly, we see legitimate position Within the Levitical tribe, for those who partook of the sacrifices. So this whole system of God that God had designed—that a portion, a tenth of what was offered up in the sacrifice, uh, certain you know parts, the thigh and the leg, and so on—was offered to the priests, which was then able to be shared with their family. And here again, because this was considered a holy sacrifice, something offered to holy God, only people who were properly qualified can participate. So position is important had to be Levites or under the care of the, this Levite priest who was serving, and they had to uh, be clean and so on and so forth. Okay? So that was chapter 22, verses 1 through 16. And then we see that perfection of quality for the sacrifice itself that had to be offered. Could not have an animal with any flaws. And it was fine for the people to use this animal, you know, otherwise normally, and but. But it couldn't be offered to holy God. He deserves, requires the most perfect offerings. Again, as a reflection of His holiness. All of these things God did, not because He needed them, but because He wanted people to understand the distinction between holiness and unholiness. He wanted the people to understand His perfections and see themselves in that light. In contrast, we have a tendency as human beings to elevate ourselves in our own estimation, do we not? We forgive ourselves all kinds of things that we don't forgive of other people. We see our strengths as being stronger than those of other people and our weaknesses as being not as weak as other people's. We just have this prideful tendency. And you see, throughout all the religious systems of the world, the idea that I can do things to achieve what needs to be achieved. I can, you know, to use the old expression, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can, I can be good enough. I can get better. I can be very devout. I can walk for miles and bare feet on rough country roads to a particular holy place to impress God somehow with my devotion. I can crawl on my knees across cobblestones and kiss a statue and impress God with my devotion. It's this human drive to somehow do it myself. And God is trying to just smash that down in in his people. He wants them to understand, no, you cannot do it. You don't understand the distance between my holiness and your sinfulness the chasm that lies between us. You cannot grasp it. And he's doing everything he can symbolically and ceremonially to communicate to them his holiness in contrast to their unholiness. And so he just continues to raise the bar. But then as I mentioned, if you happen to read the blurb in the the Connect newsletter, when we come to the New Testament and we see Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, now you have been... Told, you have been taught, and he references Old Testament standards as well as Pharisaical teachings, and he says, you've been told that you need to do this to be acceptable to God, but I tell you, and then he goes and raises the bar further. He says, you've been told you don't kill, I'm saying you shouldn't even hate. And everybody is forced at that time to become introspective and realize I just really can't meet God's standard, can I? I really cannot achieve it by myself. I cannot reach His level of perfection. And that was the point of the law, and that was the point of the Sermon on the Mount, is to bring us to that place of recognizing we cannot do for ourselves what needs to be done to be acceptable to God. We simply cannot do it. The best of us cannot measure up. That seems like terribly bad news. But we see that God's requirements were finally met in one priestly sacrifice. For all those thousands and tens of thousands, who knows how many animals that were sacrificed to make vivid the seriousness of sin in contrast to the holiness of God, All it took, ultimately, was one sacrifice to finish it all, to satisfy God's perfect standards. We see that Jesus came to fulfill all of these requirements. Jesus was morally pure. Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to join me there, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 And by the way, if you ever want to do a study in Hebrews, you need to go back and reread Leviticus first, or keep going back and forth, because you cannot really understand Hebrews without Leviticus. These two have a very close relationship to each other, just as you should never study Revelation without the book of Daniel, by the way. All right, so in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not just through the veil, but through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that passage because I am ever so aware of my frailty and my failures, of my sinfulness, my inability to measure up. I am so grateful that not only do we have a great high priest who himself is perfect, but he knows what it is to experience the temptations, that we face. He knows what it is to live in this sin-cursed world. He has sympathy for us. And yet He went before and demonstrated what perfection is and made a way for us to be forgiven for all of our faults. And He has made it possible that, so that I, though I am dirty, though I am guilty, though I am weak, I am unholy, Through Him, I'm given access to approach the throne of grace, to receive mercy, and to find grace to help me in my time of need. Praise God. He Himself, though, is pure. Jesus is also uniquely positioned we talked about the importance of position. They had to be qualified. They had to be Levites, and particularly to serve as priests who would go before God in the holy place, they had to be a, descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron himself. Position was very important to participate in the blessings of the sacrifice that was brought. Jesus was uniquely positioned to provide mediation. He was the most qualified of all to serve between holy God and God. And unholy people. Hebrews 7 verses 22 through 28 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And that, I hate to chop off what comes before that. The whole context is so rich and so instructive, but I, I've just narrowed this down. Verse 23, the former priests who were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds They were many in number because they died, right? There was one priest after another after another because they kept dying. But He, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And there you see in that list the requirements that are are referred to in this passage of Leviticus that we just read. The high priest had to be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, but now Jesus is also exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. That's what the high priest had to do. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sin first before they could even begin to offer up sacrifices for the people. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He is holy. He is pure. He has no sin for which to offer sacrifice for himself. Since he did this this offering of the sacrifice for the people he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever and that's jesus well, this makes me this reminds me again of philippians chapter 2 which I have already referred to, but, but I want to read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Some of you have memorized this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But Jesus was also the perfect sacrifice to provide absolute atonement. Imagine this, he's the perfect high priest, but he himself is also the perfect sacrifice. What perfect mediation he offers. Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14 says so we're still in Hebrews, right? When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, this a reference again to the new covenant and His blood, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not on the one that we read about in the Old Testament, but the perfect tent, the tabernacle of heaven, Through the greater and more perfect tent, He entered, verse 12, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Those those animals couldn't do the job. They certainly didn't provide permanent coverage, but His sacrifice secures eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He makes it so that we can stand before God and be seen by Him as pure, as perfect, as acceptable in our position in Christ. Jesus accomplished what no one else could accomplish. Hebrews chapter 10 continues this. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm, I'm going to skip a section in the middle. So it's, it'll be verses 1 through 4 and then 10 through 14. It says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continued, continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Again, just pointing out that that human form, that tabernacle, and then later the temple, and all the sacrificial system, falls short to really solve people's problem. Verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since... The worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So, in other words, if they had really worked, they could have been done with it at some point. People would have been able to say, yes, I've been cleansed once for all. It's all good. No more sacrifices for me. The author of Hebrews is saying that they never achieved that. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, they were just that temporary covering. They were just an indicator, an acknowledgement of guilt before God and of the seriousness and the consequences of sin. But they cannot take the sins away, which is why it's so significant when Jesus came on the scene and, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was something new. That was something different. The Lamb of God, the one provided by God Himself to do it permanently, to actually achieve what none of the other sacrifices ever did, to take away the sins of the world. Down to verse 10 of Hebrews 10. It says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Those who are being sanctified are those who place themselves under that shed blood. For those who allow that sacrifice to be applied to themselves, and that's done by faith. It's done by accepting by faith what Jesus did for them. So it's possible, it's possible for anyone today to have this status of pure, in a proper position, seen as perfect in the eyes of God, accepted as his, his child. No matter what the history is, no matter what the failings are, through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a person can be truly redeemed, truly cleansed, truly atoned for, to be made acceptable to God, to be given direct access. When I, the more I study, the more I just thank God for the fact that at any moment I could just say, Father, and I know that he's listening, where the people of Israel had to drag those poor innocent lambs to the tabernacle and had to face a human priest who himself had his failings and had to offer sacrifices for his own sins and had to bring this sacrifice in order to be forgiven for God, for his sin before God, and had to have the priest go pray for them. What a privilege we have today through Jesus Christ to boldly approach the throne of grace where we can receive mercy and grace even for our daily living. In our times of weakness, in our need, we can just say, Father, we are granted access. So, a few things to consider. First of all, just thank God that we have the perfect high priest in Jesus Christ. Be grateful for this privilege, what has been provided for us. I am so thankful that I live on this end of history, on this side of the cross, Is it? as the ensemble played, even in the the offertory, they they played the song, I Come to the Cross Seeking Mercy and Grace. It says, your arms are open. You call me by name. It's a beautiful truth that we have this access. Secondly, having been granted forgiveness and acceptance and access to God through Jesus' perfect sacrifice and His perfect mediation... We should seek daily to reflect His perfection in our lives. We see the standards that were given to these human subjects of God, these priests as well as the people. They're called to live lives of holiness. Why? Because somehow that's going to achieve favor with God? No, to reflect the holiness of God who is their Savior, the one who owns them, who claims them. We should not profane His name by the way we live. My wife and I have both, in our, in our history, worked in you know, regular, for lack of a better expression, secular workplaces. We've had these experiences that many of you experience all the time, worked in offices in Chicago and, and other jobs. And we worked among the people, the kind of people that you work among. I understand. But you know who, it wasn't so hard to work alongside. Patrick, who first on his first meeting with, with Angie at the workplace said, I'm the guy your parents warned you about. I'm a gay atheist. She was supposed to be terrified, apparently. She said, oh, nice to meet you, Patrick. I'm Angela. I'm a Christian. They actually became friends enough that she was able to share the gospel with Patrick. He didn't in our time of knowing him accept. The gospel message. But see, she didn't have nearly as much of a difficult time working alongside of, of, of this person who kind of owned his rebellion, so to speak, as she did with the other person in the office who claimed to be a Christian but didn't live like one. That was harmful. That person who says, I'm a Christian, and very clearly, before everyone else, lived in a way that did not reflect God's holy character. And it gave the testimony a black eye, and the people would even make little snide comments and say, "Well, if that's what a Christian is like, I'm not any better. I'm not any worse off the way I am." Now that's a shame, and that still applies to us today. If God's people were expected in the Old Testament to reflect His holy character for the sake of the nations that were observing, so that they would be drawn to the one true and living, and holy, and good God, we who have been redeemed, we who have been given such a gift at such great cost, but not to ourselves, if we call ourselves His because we have trusted and accepted that sacrifice, we cannot, we must not, just flagrantly live in a way that besmirches His reputation. We cannot profane the name of our Savior before the onlooking world. It's not just my life. I can't just say, I'll do it my way. It's my life. It's my money. It's my time. It's my personal choices. God has revealed standards of holiness in His Word. And while thankfully He doesn't hold us to all of the same particulars of the Old Testament code... We can see through that what he values. We can see through that what he hates. We have clear enough instruction in the New Testament as well. So no, we don't get to live however we want to. Yes, we live under mercy and grace, but we still don't get to just live however we want to. We must reflect the character we do, whether we like it or not. We reflect our God. Do we reflect him accurately or do we reflect him falsely to the people who are looking on. I, I, I take this on myself. I have to ask myself this all the time. If I respond to this person the way I want to right now, if I say what's running through my head at the moment, that's not going to help the testimony, is it? Lord, help me quench this little fire of my personal anger. <laughs> Give me words of grace. Change my attitude toward this person. We all have to do this. And we have the Spirit to help us. We have this direct access in that moment to the throne of grace to seek mercy and grace in our time of need, in our time of difficulty, in our time of weakness. So third point, we should all strive to obey these challenges that we see here summed up in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, I'll read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. There's a challenge for us for Sunday morning as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see this world deteriorating, as we anticipate Christ's return, more and more, given all the signs around us, as we see the day drawing near, we need to do these things more and more. More and more. Coming before the throne of grace. More and more. Holding fast to the confession in spite of the challenges, in the face of the challenges, holding to that hope, that security, that certainty of heaven without wavering because we know He is faithful even if we are unfaithful. More and more, we need to consider how we can stir up one another, how we can help one another toward love and good works and not neglecting to meet together. Now, I'm thankful for the technology that allows people to tune in from other places to our services, and we know that there sometimes there are people who just couldn't be here, right? On a regular basis, there's somebody who's away or who's ill, uh, struggling with, you know, various reasons why they can't make it, and so, uh, so we have continued to offer that because we're thankful that that enables some people to participate with us in a fashion. But let me challenge you, please, not to make something like that the easy fallback, Oh, it's been a tough week. I'm tired. You know, I just I don't feel 100%. You know. Well, we're encouraged, we're instructed, we're challenged in God's Word not to neglect the meeting together. It is, does become the habit of some, but we're here to encourage one another. And so, yes, you can hear the message at home, you can hear the songs at home, and that can benefit you some, but if you opt for that just because it's easier, then you're falling down in this other responsibility of being available to your brothers and sisters in Christ to stir them toward love and good works and to encourage them. You can't encourage them in their worship if they don't hear your voice. You can't encourage them in their walk if you're not here to talk to them and hear and share their burdens and to give them a hug and to pray for them. You can't do those things remotely, in the same way that you can do here. Now I'm preaching to the choir, right? Here you are. Great. Good for you. Remember this on that Sunday morning when you're going, uh, it'd be easier to just put on a shirt and pour a bowl of cereal and sit on the sofa and tune in by Zoom. Sure, it would be easier, but is that what you should do? I'm not trying to be legalistic. We're not keeping... We're not publishing any role of attendance or anything like that, all right? There are no gold stars, silver stars, or red Xs against your name based on your attendance. That's not it. It's that we're encouraged in God's word to be an encouragement to one another and to not forsake the gathering together. We have these challenges before us of living in a way that God wants us to live in the midst of a world that is is against all of that. We need each other. We need to help each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to share the love of Christ and the fellowship that we have in Him, and it's best done when we're in the same place. So that's just another one of the things. So let's ask God, since we have this free access to come to Him right now, ask Him for the mercy and grace to help us in our time of weakness and of need that we can live in a way that He wants us to, to reflect His holiness to the onlooking world. Father, this is our desire. Maybe the desire isn't strong yet in our hearts. Maybe it's not what it should be. But for all who know you, who have your spirit at work in their lives, we at some level desire to be more the kind of children you want us to be. We desire to reflect your holiness and your goodness and your grace and your mercy to the world around us. We want them to see in us what is different The hope that we have of eternity, that we hold to, that we cling to in the face of even some of the greatest challenges. Help us to be faithful. We're coming to you because you've given us this privilege through Jesus Christ to come and lay these requests before you. And so we are trusting you, and we pray that you will increase our faith, that you will draw us to yourself more frequently, that we would access your throne, that we would exercise this privilege more faithfully, more consistently, more constantly in our lives, that we might become greater reflections of your goodness, of the, of the character of Christ to the world around us, that others might come to know you. We thank you and we pray for these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen.